Welcome to Ask the Rabbi with Rabbi Menachem Creditor, a Jcast Network podcast. Join Rabbi Creditor each month as he is asked questions about Judaism, Jewish ritual, and Jewish thought by members of his community at Congregation Nitivot Shalom in Berkeley, California, and tries to provide understanding and deeper meaning in Jewish life and learning. For more information about Rabbi Creditor, please visit menachemcreditor.org. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Um, so here's how I want to start uh, our conversation. Um, we in the Jewish community hear too often that we can't talk about Israel. And I think we hear too often because it's not true. When we say we can't talk about Israel, we're talking about Israel. Uh, and we're naming a discomfort, we're naming how deep a nerve this is, and how exposed it is, actually. And so... Part of what I want to do is share um, some opening thoughts and then open it up to questions, which is how we did the theology conversation as well, and I think it's useful. So one of the things that I think it's important to start with is my commitment, my personal commitment, my rabbinic commitment, which is different than the community stance, only because it's me saying it. But I happen to think that we line up quite well, which is to say that there are parameters to the conversation. Um, the parameters of the conversation, at least to my heart, go like this. If you think... Israel doesn't have the right to exist as a Jewish democratic state. That's not in this conversation. And if you believe that an Arab isn't a human being, that's not in this conversation either. Within that spectrum, there's an incredibly important diversity of opinions that exists in our community. So me personally, my activism, so I've been to Israel 23 times so far. I lived in Israel for two and a half years, once uh, right after high school, once in rabbinical school, and one in between a half year. Um, my children have been to Israel many times. Uh, I'm going to be going to Israel leading a trip of rabbis on behalf of APAC this coming summer. Um, it's actually an interesting effort on the part of APAC to regain uh, a spectrum of opinion, uh, recognizing not only that it was a perception problem that APAC has been facing in the, in the recent past, but also a recognition that American politics, including the emergence of J Street, has led progressive-minded Jews and rabbis in many ways away from APAC, where in fact I think their voices are very important. So one of my personal commitments is to being a progressive rabbi as part of APAC, because I believe in its mission and believe that it is also a progressive calling to be present in that geopoliticking way. Um, in addition to which, I'm a very big supporter of the New Israel Fund. New Israel Fund is dedicated to supporting the democratic and Jewish ideals, having that conversation be alive and tended to. Part of the reason, the way that I explain it typically, that I have those two commitments as, as my primary organizational involvements when it comes to Israel, as manifestations of my own Zionism, um, is because Herzl had two parts to his dream. One part was establishing the international legitimacy and security of Israel. The other half of his dream, his commitment, was to nurturing the internal development and maturation of the institutions of the state. I believe that those two are not the same thing, and at one point, uh, I couldn't understand why when something that I believed to be morally questionable happened in Israel, APAC wouldn't respond. So, for instance, forget geopoliticking, but chairs being thrown across the Mechitza at the Kotel. Right? Happened to be what, that when the chairs were thrown across the Mechitza at women at the Kotel, my sister was davening and the chair was thrown directly at her when she was with women of the wall, which led to my involvement as the founding international co-chair of Rabbis for Women of the Wall. That commitment was a manifestation of, of my Zionism too, and I couldn't understand why wouldn't APAC say something. And what I've come to understand, what I believe, 
is that each segment of the community has its own mandate when it comes to generating the conversation. J Street, for instance, this last week was just denied a seat at the table of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. Now, we don't know exactly how everyone voted, and I don't involve myself in J Street events because it's not a place where I feel my own Zionism uh, to be channeling, uh, to be channeled, to be, um, to be not invited, but it doesn't vibrate in the same way that APAC does for me. I'm likely more uncomfortable with J Street than I am uncomfortable with APAC, and I choose to be uncomfortable in that sphere, right, and agitate for change in that way. But J Street serves an incredibly important purpose within the American Jewish community, which is giving many progressive-minded American Jews a place to talk, a place to work. Their lobbying with the American government is representative of a decent segment of the American Jewish population. And so we cannot have a conversation about Israel today as American Jews without saying, well, these are the range of opinions of American Jews. I do not grant the same legitimacy to those who support what I believe to be attacks on Israel, either the existential legitimacy of Israel or working against Israel's existence. So the extreme of that is whenever you go to an Israel rally or a parade and you see people who look like they're Jewish, caricatures of Jews with payas and the, right, holding a sign that's saying Judaism doesn't equal Zionism, right? That is a deep attack on the Jewish people. It's not a question of the theology that leads to the founding of a state. That is an attack on the place where the majority of Jews who are alive today live. There's no way that that can be representative of a Jewish voice. Those Jews, to my mind, have written themselves out of the conversation. Jews who don't care, who are not engaged at all with Israel, that is a different kind of problem, but one that is normal given that the dreams of the early Zionists was to build a normalized Jewish state. A normalized Jewish state will only be as appealing and compelling as any state is. And especially because we're in Berkeley, and especially because people have just as much problem, not just with the Israeli flag in Berkeley, but with the American flag in Berkeley, I find that to be a healthy part of the conversation to identify, but not a healthy one to include. The rejection of uh, the idea of a state, because it isn't perfect, it, that can't be part of our conversation. So let's start with a few different premises, which, is our, which are a little bit different from what I said. Here are a few premises. Israel exists. The commitment of Nitivot Shalom is to be connected with Israel. The inclination on the part of very passionate Jews is to engage with the struggle for every one of our ideas, including Halacha, including Torah, including God. Israel is not greater a dogma than any of those things. And if we can have a range of opinions when it comes to the existence or identity of God, we can have a conversation about the range and identity of what Israel means. But it has to be one that fits within the Jewish conversation. And so that is a subjective boundary drawing. And I think it's a healthy one. It allows us to have a conversation as connected. Because if we don't care, we're not connected. And if we don't believe it should exist, we're not connected since I believe Israel is our home, since I am always uncomfortable with everything that happens in my own home, my own parents' home, I have no problem pointing out that I'm not entirely satisfied with what happens in my national home too. So those are my um, starting statements. I'm curious where you are with your questions, and feel free to attack everything I've said because that's very Jewish. So who's first? I have a question. So, um, obviously, in Israel right now, the Orthodox voice is the dominant one, and, and um, you know, 
has effect on policy. Um, as conservative Jews, um, you know, sometimes it can be hard to identify with that, or at least aspects of that. So where is the conservative voice right now in, in Israel? Is there one, and is there any movement to recognizing conservative Judaism, incorporating it in politics, etc.? Yeah, I think it's a really healthy question. I, I would only reframe the first part of it, which is to say that the dominant voice right now in Israel is not Orthodox, but the dominant voice within Jewish practice within Israel is Orthodox. Because the majority of Jews in Israel don't care. It's not that they, actually, it's not that they're secular, it's that their Judaism is not defined by tradition. Right? So when someone says, I'm Chiloni, I'm, I'm secular, but I have Seder, okay, that's actually one of the big identifiers for the sociologists of American Jewry to say you're connected to the religion. So, in fact, the words themselves are problematic. But for now, in terms of the religious establishment, it's clear that the dominant voice there is absolutely orthodox. And within orthodox, ultra-orthodox. Um, and so your question is about the place of conservative Judaism in Israel. Part of the problem with the question is that the conservative movement worldwide is not doing well. The American conservative movement is hemorrhaging members because of its institutional dysfunction. And also because its mission has been subsumed by modern orthodoxy and traditional reform and a lot of other permutations. The cathedral synagogues that were the heart of conservative Judaism when suburbia exploded in the United States are failing because the generation that built it is the generation that lives there. But many, many of their children and children's children and those who came to Judaism aren't interested in that form. So if that's true, and American Judaism is the Judaism with denominations, because that actually was true in Western Europe for some time. And now is sort of true, sort of not. There are new rabbinical schools. There's a Masorti rabbinical school in Germany, in Argentina. So the place of Masorti Judaism is questionable, period. The question of Masorti Judaism, conservative Judaism in Israel, is also complicated because the generation that founded the Masorti movement in Israel were Americans who made Aliyah. And so it's a transplant movement at best. The reform movement is also a transplant movement at best. Orthodoxy as it currently exists is not the eternal way that Judaism was, but it became seen, especially after the Shoah, as absolutely the remnant of what had been. So in homage to that, Ben-Gurion made what is now seen as a historical mistake to cede all authority when it comes to Jewish status and life cycle events to the Haredi community, the ultra-Orthodox community, which at that time numbered in the hundreds, and everyone thought it would die out. As it turns out, they didn't die out. Um, so the place of Mosorti Judaism is that it's basically a startup within the startup nation. And um, Mosorti Jews are actually now mostly Israeli-born. Mosorti Jews are struggling against an infrastructure that is still somewhat supported financially and by governance by American Judaism. So as American Judaism, especially conservative Judaism, feels weaker and threatened, sort of it holds close to the, to the chest its power, and only by little steps does Israeli Masorti Judaism begin to flourish on its own terms. We're only seeing the beginning of that. I would say that because of agitators like Anat Hoffman, leader of Women of the Wall, non-Orthodox Judaism has much stronger a voice in Israel than otherwise, but I don't know that I have confidence yet in Masorti Judaism rising to its own strength. There are certainly a, a lot of passionate people. My dear friend Yishar Hess was the executive director of the Masorti movement in Israel who visited Nitivot last year, the year before, um, is doing amazing work. 
but the network that's in place is actually hopefully going to get involved politically because the idea that you can have a religious movement that isn't politically active it's just a non-starter in Israel and only now are they starting to act politically which I think is a good idea so the last question I asked of someone the speaker was a question I asked of Stephen Colbert in his taping so you have you know, you're, you're, you're following a, a good show. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, I, first of all, I just want to comment on your, your, your uh, introduction around the, the range of, of opinions and can you talk about Israel. When I um, came back from having immigrated to Israel to Los, to Los Angeles, when I was in Israel, I was a member of Nashim Bishapur, women in black, who protested the occupation. Uh, from the Prime Minister's residence. And I found when I came to Los Angeles, I was much less able to have those conversations with American Jews than I was with Israelis. I mean, they were much more comfortable with having that range of opinion. Um, yesterday, the Supreme Court decided that it's okay... Of the United States. Of the, of the United States. And it's okay to have a invocation at a town meeting that, inv that includes Jesus Christ. And I find that highly offensive, particularly since one of the plaintiffs who brought the case was a Jewish woman. Um, so my question is, and I hope you hear it in the right way, not that I'm one of the rejectionists, but I find it hard for me to think about Netanyahu's statement that, you know, Israel must be accepted as a Jewish state when 20% of Israel is not Jewish. Mm -hmm. Same as, I don't feel comfortable with the United States being called a Christian state. So... And so I don't even know exactly where, how I would define it, but I definitely feel like it's a homeland for Jews, but making it a Jewish state, maybe that's too much of my Americanism coming out, but I'm, I'm highly conflicted over that statement. To me, it sounds like it completely denigrates and, and invalidates 20% of the population, and that's not, that doesn't make me feel good. So how do we deal with that? Yeah, that's a very, very powerful question. I would say that... Um, I think, you know, I think it's fair to say, at least speaking personally, I never would have voted for Netanyahu. His tenor and tone strike me as um, sort of saber-rattling uh, at best, most of the time. Um, I think he's politically savvy. Uh, that's why he keeps winning. I think the Israeli electorate sees in him a strength, um, which is more indicative about how effective he is than the specific policies, though as a, the... Uh, Minister of the Economy, he actually did a lot of uh, good, it seems, for the economy. Not all sectors, but some decent sections. So I think he has the political capital to spend in these ways and to say things that are um, troublesome. What I would do, though, before continuing, is draw a delineation between the founding of America as a place for religious freedom. Yes, by Puritans. Yes, they were escaping religious fundamentalism only to establish their own, only so that uh, the state of Rhode Island, the colony of Rhode Island could be founded so that you get freedom from freedom from freedom. Um, um, but Israel was founded on Jewish principles. Now, the founding itself, which involves occupation, there's no way around it. If you read Ari Shavit's book, if you read, you know, Yossi Klein Halevi's book, you don't have to go to, to Peter Beinart to hear a very critical Zionism, one that looks back at the history of what Shavit calls necessary decisions for the perpetuation of Zionism at the expense of a lot of the universalism that led early Zionism to be. Um, and I, I struggle with that mightily, so I don't want to dismiss your question with any pat answer. What I do think is important to do is draw the distinction between the founding of the United States and its commitments, 
which is not a Christian country, though the predominant experience is, as opposed to Israel, where it was founded to be the Judenstaat, right, which is alternatively translated as the Jewish state or the state of the Jews. Either way, it's problematic to the population that isn't Jewish within. I don't mean to deflect, but what I would point to is the treatment of non-Jews within Israeli society, non-Jewish Israeli citizens, right, are uh, are not uh, expected to take an oath of loyalty to Judaism. And so the way that Judaism is expressed as policy and law within Israel is a way of establishing it as a Jewish state, as opposed to it being a state that is there for the Jews, right? That commitment, I think, is actually quite essential. It is certainly problematic. I don't know how I would legislate. I actually, speaking more as an American than anything else, have a real problem when religion and state mix, because when power is at stake, you do what you can and must to retain power. When religion is that power, you bring God into it, and then as Erwin Kula says, if I believe I have more God than you, I get a gun. So I'm uncomfortable with the voice of religion within the structures of power for a state, but it's also, I think, essential to see that the founding of the state of Israel is from within the process of the Jewish people's experience. So how to do that right? And then looking at the talking point that Netanyahu had, that you're bringing up as a negotiation mandate, he said, um, was a way of distancing himself from the negotiations with the Palestinians that were already failing. So what he did is he pandered to his base, by making a demand that had mostly been met already, actually. The recognition of Israel, period, forget the Jewish state phrase, had already been done by Hamas, right, as a conditional acceptance, and certainly by Fatah as an absolute acceptance while Arafat was alive. Now, whether they meant it is a different question, how they meant it is a different question, it is clear to me that Netanyahu used that demand as a way of saying, this is absolutely who we are, you accept us here, period, and Jewishly, which is something that he knew Hamas would say no to. Despite the fact that he used it in such a way, I don't find the demand to be so problematic. Because for it to be a Jewish state is also to be just to all of its citizens. The 20% of Israel that is not Jewish is treated under the law with dignity. Now, whether or not that has always followed through, we could also talk about whether or not the new Jim Crow and mass incarceration in the United States is civil liberty being spelled out. So... I can't attack the definition of the state because it fails at what it's supposed to do. What I can do is say, you're failing at what you're supposed to do, getting back to it, which is why I believe in the work of New Israel Fund, which is to always mandate those Jewish values of justice and dignity being spelled out beyond the Jews who are citizens of Israel. But the failure of the state to do what it must is not the same as the definition of the state being wrong. But can I country be a theological country and a democracy? Theological is different than Jewish. Jewish is culture. Someone wants to convert to Judaism, there's no dogma expected of them. I have a whole talk on this called The Birth of Heresy, where I castigate Maimonides. Um, and it's not my own scholarship that, I'm, that I've exercised, but people like Rabbi David Hoffman and others have pointed to Maimonides introducing dogma into Judaism. The idea that you need to believe in God in order to be an authentic Jew, to enter into the Jewish community, is something that was not there in the codes until Maimonides introduced it, coming from a notion of a platonic idea, all, all, all sorts of things. Um, because Judaism is bigger than theology, I actually think there was a, a redemptive way out. Jewish culture has had a tremendous voice channeling 
different elements of the Jewish uh, canon, including the prophets. The prophets weren't interested in people keeping kosher. The prophets were interested in people being fed. And so I think it's important to say that Judaism is big enough to act justly within a community that includes non-Jews. In a non-political way, we do that as a shul. We have many members who are not Jewish. That's a commitment we make. Should the shul not be a shul because we have non-Jews who are members? No. The non-Jews accept the definition of a shul as the Jewish community and want to be there, and we want them there. So it can be Jewish with Jews not in it treated with dignity. I think it's an important assertion for the nature of Israel to be maintained as a Jewish place, but to not let go what that actually mandates us to do. Let me, can I follow up what you're saying? Yeah. First of all, uh, um, I, I wouldn't want, I mean, it's very hard to talk about this issue without slipping into things that sound polemical. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I don't want to do that. First of all, I respect the conversation, the issues. Secondly, out of affection and respect and regard for you. you know. um, so the first thing I want to say, though, again, without needing to call it fancy, is when you, when you started out by saying um, the conversation excludes people who reject the idea of uh, a Jewish state, let's say, or, or, or Israel, um, I think that's, a, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I'm one of those folks, but my doubts and my ideas go cover a, a, a lot of ground, okay? depending on what's going on, and depending on how much room I feel there is for a conversation about things that bother me about uh, uh, Israel. Okay? So when you started out that way, I felt hurt, actually. You know what I mean? Uh, at number one. Number two, I think, I think that it would be important to be able to include people, Jews, who reject Israel in the conversation as opposed to um, drawing a line and excluding them. I would think that would be, be something that would be helpful. But what I wanted to get back to really was what you had said before, about um, about um, uh, power um, and and uh, a preferred point of view of ideology. Okay? Um, where I have my aspects is 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 it possible? Going back to the question that you raised, is it possible to have a democracy that is oriented towards um, giving? Um, Whatever being Jewish is, it's a religion, it's an ethnicity, so forth and so on. Can can a state be both democratic and give preference to that? Because um, it's one thing to be in a minority politically and feel like how much say do you have until you can become a majority. But from from, from, from but when when it's hooked into um, a, a, a ethno religious whatever cultural whatever you want to call it, a Jewish sensibility, then the state then becomes, then the state definitely has a responsibility, has impetus, has a motivation to protect that sensibility. It w- meaning that, that, that there's even a more powerful um, uh, um, obstacles to a minority feeling fully a part of that community. And so then the question becomes, you know, and then, uh, it, so then, are we, are we kidding ourselves in some ways? Maybe for good reason, maybe for not, so, not such good reason. Are we, kid our, are we kidding ourselves by describing Israel as a, as a Jewish democracy? Because, because it, it does start to feel at times like it's a conundrum, like it's a contradiction in terms. So how do you, what I'm asking is, you mentioned it, you're sensitive to the, to the issue. How, how does that get resolved? Sure. First of all, I think to the first part of your point, 
Um, since the definition of the conversation is Zionism, mm -hmm. those who don't believe in Zionism aren't having a conversation about Zionism. Right? And so it's not because their point of view doesn't have a place in the world, but because their conversation is not the one that I'm having. I actually don't have room. It's not a hurtful intent, but I'm a Zionist. My Judaism leads me to believe in yearning for Zion, not only in metaphysical ways, but in physical ways. And so because of that religious ideal, it's actually not something I could, would, and believe I should compromise on. Um, because of that religious and people-driven commitment, I really do think that the people in the conversation are limited. It's not everyone. It's similar to um, the kind of limits, though it sounds different, it, it feels the same to me. Um, it's no different than the anti-circumcision extremists who want and frequently visit me, sometimes uninvited, um, to have me change my position. And they always start by saying, you're so compassionate when it comes to other issues and flexible when it comes to law. Why would you demand this? And the answer is because this is what my people does. And my compassion for you. And some of them have very, very painful stories to share. My compassion for them is different than my agreement. Much the same way that I would defend very loudly J Street's right to be at the table while not participating in J Street's events. Uh, and so I think it's important to just establish that the parameters of the conversation actually do make those demands. There isn't room for every opinion, especially when it comes to the pursuit of an idea. Similar, again, to the pursuit of halakha as a Jewish community. We believe in Jewish law, an evolving consciousness and practice on behalf of the Jewish people. Um, we believe it as, as an obligation. I might define it typically as aspirational conduct, right? but I actually do want everybody to keep kosher, and I want people to experience Shabbat. Drive to shul. Experience Shabbat. But when someone says, I can't make it to shul, is that okay? Well, I say, if you can't make it to shul, it's okay. If you're not coming to shul because you're choosing not to come to shul, come to shul. So the same kind of, you know, that's a smiling noji thing that I do sometimes with people, is similar to the expectation that the conversation about Zionism has boundaries. So that being the first part, even though it's obviously an ongoing conversation, I know we can and should go on for a while about it. The second half of what you were saying was about the conundrum of can um, it, can Israel be a democracy and also a state driven by an idea? Right? I mean, that's a very lukewarm way of saying it. And I think it's a very big question. Um, I, I believe it's one of the things that's driving the conversation about the occupation forward fastest because um, Israel needs to be mindful of what it means to absorb a population um, and them not be citizens in the same way. That's very problematic. Now, Carrie stepped into a pile of stuff um, <laughs> by, by misnaming the reality of it, but his, his urgency is not at all inappropriate. I just think he stepped on a political landmine and... Uh, and aborted any hope that the, the current peace talks uh, might have had. And because uh, the reality of that is the case, even Ariel Sharon withdrew from Gaza. Now, it's complicated because the withdrawal from Gaza was also supposed to be a statement that the Palestinians could begin to self-determine, but because it was unilateral and not uh, a mutually agreed-upon process, um, Hamas won a legislative majority in the new Palestinian elections, and then with a military coup, expelled Fatah from Gaza. 
they would have been, quote, the more moderate, though I don't think Fatah is so moderate, actually. Um, because that happened, Hamas took over Gaza, and then the PLO, which is mostly Fatah, is now the West Bank. The West Bank has better relations with Israel and better relations with the United States, but the fracture of the two parts of the Palestinian people leads to an even, even bigger conundrum, which is to say, if the democracy that Israel is wants to establish a peace negotiation, with whom should they? Is it two peoples calling themselves a Palestinian people? Is it one people divided by politics? The same is true within Israel, and Danny Gordas actually pointed this out about six years ago. That you've got within Israel, you've got the Tel Aviv Israel and the Jerusalem Israel. You've got the Hamastan, which is the, uh, which is Aza, the Gaza Strip, and you've got the West Bank. Now you've got other subdivisions, but those four potential ways of describing it makes it hard to establish what the democracy is and what power it has, and whether or not an idea can drive a people in the first place, or whether or not a national identity is simply a way of framing the people that are there. If it is simply a way of framing the people that are there, the way for Israel to move forward as a Jewish democracy mandates the recognition that it is going to be a Jewish democracy. So what does the Jewish mean? There has to be a lot of work in terms of the definition. People like Dov Elboim, who has a tremendous new book called um, Into the Void, um, is leading a new movement within Israel to read the Declaration of Independence as uh, Israeli Declaration of Independence as scripture to create an evolutionary consciousness within Israel based on Israel's own founding that would create a new Jewish ethos. But until then, it's still vestiges of Eastern Europe conflicting with Yemenite, conflicting with Ethiopian, conflicting with a new influx of Russians. And who the people is is a very big question. Now, what a democracy is, what a democracy is, is also a very good question. It's a parliamentary democracy. So it's not exactly the same kind of representational democracy that we have here. So in order to understand whether or not it can work, we have to establish what it is. In order to establish what it is, we have to identify when it works and when it doesn't on its own terms, as opposed to it being invalidated because it's so dysfunctional. The parliamentary democracy that Israel has is based on the British model, not the American model, which disempowers large segments of the British people regularly. So if that is a regular function of a parliamentary democracy, and there's a fractured national identity when it comes to the Israeli population itself. It's only natural to see it not working in the way that we want it to work. Having spent a tremendous amount of time recently on Capitol Hill, I can guarantee you that our system is not working the way it's meant to work. To have a conversation about the tax code and tax evasion and havens and anonymous corporations, which was the last lobbying trip I went on with, uh, with Jubilee USA, a faith-based organizing group, um, and to be told even by those politicians who agreed with us that there was no hope of moving the conversation they believed in forward, tells me that politics is actually the problem, not only whether or not ideas and democracy can coexist. Because I'd like to believe that America is based on a collective obligation. But the dominant strain of Americanism, whatever that means, is very much about rugged individualism, an Emerson kind of uh, American ethos. And so before I can say with any surety about Israel's the impossibility of Israel's being a Jewish democracy, I have to acknowledge that democracy is only slightly better than everything else that's terrible. Um, and the fact that, again, it fails at its own ideas doesn't mean that a democracy cannot be in pursuit of an idea. It demands of the population, the citizens of that country, to be very loud, to regain a noble aspiration as a people.
I think that's possible. And if that were actually the conversation that were happening in Israel or between Israel and the Palestinians, it would be a very, very different situation right now. I have to say that given the circumstances, I'm impressed by Israel's ability to maintain its democracy. The challenges to its democracy are no greater than the challenges to American democracy. And we're watching how well that works recently. So it's not an argument that says, no, there's no problem. It's an argument that says, yes, it's a universal problem, which means politics are problematic. Once people achieve power and have competing ideas, things stop or things break. And the question is, can Israel regain its footing in terms of its own internal justice? And I think that is a big question. And again, that's why I believe New Israel Fund is a vital organ within the Israeli democracy, because it's addressing this from the inside, as opposed to what I feel other organizations do, which is try to address the justice thing from the outside. I don't think that works. Um, I mean, it's interesting on the Jewish state thing. There's been a big interesting battle within Haaretz. Shavit wrote an article saying recognition of uh, Israel as a Jewish state was central to the peace process because he felt it was basically a continuation of the 48 war going on. And he was pretty viciously attacked by Shachan, the publisher, who basically called him a traitor of the peace movement so forth and so on. And then he wrote another article saying that Abbas was really playing the Lucy uh, picking up the football all these years. But um, my concern is, and it has to do a little with Jay, the J Street issue, is this growing, what I see, is a growing gap between American Jews and Israeli Jews. I mean, J Street is certainly within the tent of American uh, Jews. But within Israel, it would get a half a percent of the vote. It was against Iranian sanctions. It was against the new sanctions. Um, it eventually was for the sanctions after a while. It pretty much has followed and supported the president almost completely. That position of the United States, that position within Israel would garner very, very few votes. And I think that this is a continuing problem uh, throughout. We come to Iran which uh, Netanyahu may have overstated, but certainly there's been a couple of Amos Yedlin from the security uh, uh, think tank in Tel Aviv, and others have written that they are really scared to death. Maybe not that, but very questioning what looks to be the, Israel, the American position and the P5 plus one in Geneva, which now indicates they're going to allow a, uh, a breakout period of 6 to 12 months as opposed to dismantling the whole program. And you're going to have, and I think most American Jews, even when I was at APAC, had no idea of how many centrifuges there are, what kind there are, and the IR-1, IR-2, IR-4. They have absolute, most people have absolutely no idea. And I think they rely on the Times and maybe the New Yorker, and that's their information. And I think that kind of conflict exists. And it also exists, I think, in the Palestinian, where you have, when, when the President Obama and Martin Indyk blame the Israelis for the breakdown of the peace talks and say nothing really negative about the Palestinians, that, and that position may be supported by the vast majority of American Jews, who at least don't say anything about it or don't question 
I think the American administration feels it can basically do whatever it wants without getting much pushback. As I've said, in the word of American Jews, Amalek is not Iran, it's the Koch brothers. That's how they feel. That's the threat to Jews, is the Koch brothers and Fox. So I'm, I just wonder whether down the road, how relevant really to Israelis are the positions, are the fights J Street or not, and all these things, how relevant are they? Um, to Israelis, and should they lead, is there a point at which the leadership, American Jewish leadership and rabbis should uh, do more to at least explain uh, the Israelis' position to their flocks and to their uh, American audiences? Sure. Uh, well stated. I think that um, Koch brothers aren't Amalek, but the Koch brothers and Avigdor Lieberman in Israel have a lot in common which is that they sway mass chunks of their populations towards positions that are boorish at best. Um, and uh, the slant within the media, certainly uh, Fox News takes it on the nose, so does Haaretz. So in terms of the two populations having more in common than anyone acknowledges uh, is also important. I don't know that I'm comfortable saying that the vast majority of American Jews feels any one thing. I think part of the disconnect that's happening within American Judaism, and then I'll get to your point, um, is that the vast majority of American Jews isn't resonating with the leadership of American Judaism. Um, and American Judaism was based on uh, either the mass immigration, so the Federation system, or the post-war absorption, where the uh, Federation still served a massive role, and the denominations, which um, you know are in tremendous upheaval. As a, a friend of mine, Rabbi Chaim Herring, says, over the last 30 years or so, every non-Orthodox American denomination, Jewish denomination, has gone through its own strategic plan and mission consolidation, clarification, to understand who they each are. And the more they do that, the more they sound like each other. All right, which tells you that no one's really sure exactly what differentiates one from the other. Because of that, American Judaism is in trouble. It's a demographic reality that we're in decline. It's a demographic reality that our... Um, Organized, recognizable institutions are fading because young Jews are not interested in them, if they're interested in anything, and I think they are interested in a lot, just not a, a predetermined plan. Um, in addition to which, in Israel, many, many studies are showing that the majority of young Israelis see themselves first as Israeli and maybe Jewish. So the weakening of the Jewish identity within Israel means that the bonds of the global Jewish people are weakening. I think that actually is a more significant problem than the politics that shift pretty wildly within both countries. Um, I know that um, Shavit is equally excoriated by both sides. Um, and frankly, even as someone who voted for Obama both times, uh, you know, I'm not happy uh, all the time. I'm happy some of the time, with language most of the time, but with actions, not as much. And on Israel, especially the foreign policy when uh, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, and now John Kerry, it's clear that it's mostly positions to be a punching bag by every side. And so I watch the way the current administration is pilloried by everybody on every statement, and I recognize that those for whom the New York Times and the New Yorker are their Bible are just as angry as those who, for whom the Economist and Fox News, right? Because they're all talking heads. They're extremists, right? They're not. It's not to say that the New Yorker doesn't do serious journalism, or that Fox News doesn't have pockets of integrity. Right? That tells you where I am. But um, but what's also important to say is that the disconnect between Israel and the United States is not based on the current moment. Everyone forgets 
that uh, that President Reagan sanctioned Israel for attacking the Iraq n- nuclear reactor, right? I mean, we were we sanctioned Israel. So the idea that at any one point things were dandy, and Truman, yes, recognized Israel immediately. But you look at all the presidents since, and it is really an up and down story of relationship. Even though you know, I I I am part of working as are you, um, making that relationship steady as anything and stronger over time. Um, I think it's important to say that Israel is coming into its own, and as opposed to Israel being the child of world Jewry, Israel's now the role of parent. And it makes a lot of world Jewry, especially American Jewry, very uncomfortable, because the power shift is very clear. There's a brain drain from the United States, where you look at some great, great new Jewish thinkers. And if you took a poll of where the great Jewish thinkers are really doing their work, vast majority are in Israel. A lot of the people who would be professors in the Judaics departments around the country, and we've got greats in our shul, we've got many, Robert Alter, you name it. Um, but um, the Hartman Institute seems to be the new voice of Judaism. Every stream features the Hartman Institute scholars. Isn't that amazing? So part of what's happening is not necessarily the weakening of the relationship, it's the redefinition. As I, I made a, a comment today, Israel is 66 years old. I always know how old Israel is because my father is 66 years old. They were born the same year. And the fact that, sort of the way that I look at my father, a human being, the way I look at anyone who's older than me, a human being who is only as perfect as a human being can be. You know, so to look at the evolution within that very short life already, and to see that the United States, which is also fairly young, you know, each one of them is having this really uncertain moment. Who is it called to be? So we might be 66 and 200 and whatever, we're, we're adolescents. And adolescents don't always get along just right, nor is it sure who, you know, when I make a decision as Israel. Does America have the same fear that I have? And the answer is actually legitimately no. Even though there are alliances, I as a Jew, not only because my sister lives in Tel Aviv, her fiancé also lives in Tel Aviv. My sister-in-law lives in Jerusalem with her family. My mother-in-law lives in Jerusalem. Not only because my immediate family is within range of missiles from Iran, but also because Israel is within range of missiles from Iran. The reality of that means that it'll be more pressing from an Israeli standpoint than it will be from an American. But what I would call to mind is a phrase from Paul Farmer, who's an incredible, incredible humanist, um, which is called pragmatic solidarity. If you think that the problem of a global economy hits over there, so you're not going to do anything, it's only a matter of time until it hits you. So from a pragmatic place, it makes no sense for something that is that dangerous to an ally of the United States to go unchecked. But whether there's the right decision, most security analysts believe there's no way to dismantle entirely Iran's nuclear program, which is why negotiations have to be the way, because otherwise there's actually no way. Even, you know, the the uh, computer viruses that broke a, bu- a lot of the centrifuges, they made an enormous difference, but they were a setback of months. Right? And then you accelerate the process and you break all of the promises you've made. So since no one, no one on any side is trusting Iran's leadership, Right? But no one's necessarily talking about Iran's violation of human rights of Iranians. Right? There's so many disconnects in the conversation. What I mean to say is not a closing point, but as a response, is I don't believe that Israel has anything to worry when it comes to America's friendship. I would say that the critics of that alliance are much louder and have something to say 
because the amount of foreign aid that goes towards supporting Israel's military edge vastly outpaces American foreign aid elsewhere. I'm glad for that. I want that to continue happening. I think it's in America's best interest, and it's certainly in Israel's best interests. Um, I think that isn't uh, out of compassion. I think that's out of solidarity for values and for world stability. Um, I think Israel is under threat. And no matter which side, MSNBC, Fox News, whoever, they're never going to get it, even if they claim to get it. Even if they, at the, you know, remember seeing some um, parody of the Republican Jewish coalition with all the presidential candidates that year, each one of them was trying to outbracha the other, right? Each one of them, until Lieberman, it actually wasn't Republicans, it was some other independent one, and then Lieberman uh, got up and like, you know, so he's one of us. So he sounds like a Jew, because he is. Um, I think that the problematics of the politics are not based in time. They're based in location. And it's fair to say that Israel sees things differently. And that as American Jews, that makes us really nervous. So you started out by talking about the parameters. You said part of the parameter is that Israel has to be a Jewish democratic state. And Mahal and a couple of others pursued the issue of the theocratic aspects of that. And you start, and you started to touch on the, the, the other piece, which is the democratic issue. And, and I, part of the problem, I think, is everybody has their own definition of what democracy is. People, you know, if, if the United States were a democracy, Al Gore would have been president. So, you know, we were a democratic republic. Israel is a parliamentary democracy. So there are different versions of democracy. But my question is a little different, which is, why, even if Israel is a Jewish state, does it have to be a democratic state? Historically, it's a kingdom. It's not a democracy. Part of the demographic problem in Israel is the concept of democracy. Uh, you said something to the effect of, you know, democracy isn't perfect, but it's, it's better than the other forms. That's Churchill. I was and and that's, I, I know that. <laughs> I know that. And I, I take exception to that. Uh-huh. I think that that's a, 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 a glib statement. I, I don't think that there's any empirical evidence to that effect. Mm-hmm. Historically, uh, one of the most successful forms was the philosopher king in ancient Greece. Um, I don't know what the best form of government would be for Israel. I don't necessarily think it's the best if there was a best form that's perfect for everybody, and that's part of American foreign policy's problem, is we just presume we're the best, and so we have to impose that on the rest of the world. They'll be better off if they're like us. Uh, why, other than to create a differentiator in the region to say Israel is the only democracy in the region and therefore should be supported and allied by the European Union and, and America, etc., why, in order to be a, a Jewish state, does Israel have to be a democratic state? I think that's a really profound question. Um, I want to answer in a number of different ways. Number one is, I'm not defending democracy because it's less bad. I'm demo- de- defending democracy because I believe in it. Um, democracy is, theoretically, the system where citizens have a voice in determining their own future. Um, I believe in that. Now, whether I believe in that because it's Jewish, or I believe in that because it's American, or whether or not I believe in it because a study of history has led me to believe that it is perhaps the system of self-governance of a people that actually ennobles them instead of treating them like serfs. So whether it's any of those things is really up for debate, but what you said was, why does it need to be democratic in order to be Jewish? 
what I would say in response is, it doesn't need to be democratic to be Jewish. But the Jew that I am can't imagine any other system of governance uh, for the state that calls itself Jewish. Why? Because I believe in the strain of Judaism that believes in universal human dignity. And universal human dignity is not based on the permanent allocation of power to any subset. Now, I am a Jew of the modern period. I could point to the priests. I could point to the Pharisees. I could point to the Levites. I could point to Moshe, Miriam, and Aaron. I could point to King David. We could point to anybody, the prophets and the judges and the warrior leaders in the, in the books of the judges. And so what's important to say is, I don't think that um, the Jews are different than any other people in having evolving notions of what leadership looks like. Um, in today's era, I believe that Judaism believes in the dignity of human beings, which is why I take exception to the notion of theocracy as this equivalent of Judaism. Judaism is not a theocratic communal organizing force. That is why I believe the chief rabbinate of Israel should be disestablished. It should be dismantled. There should be no such thing as the chief rabbinate of Israel because it acts in a theocratic way within a parliamentary democracy, disempowering other segments of the democracy because of its overwhelming, apparently moral authority-driven voice. It actually doesn't have that moral authority. It acts just like any political body does. It's corrupted. It's always trying to get more funding for its systems. It's ignoring corruption within its own practitioners. And it jockeys for power in such a way that dismantles the advances of Judaism that I believe have happened over time. So if you're asking me a different kind of question, which you're not, which is, how would I believe a democracy in Israel should treat its theocratic elements? Because that's actually, I think, a practical question. Right, as opposed to, why wouldn't it be a, a philosopher king? Again, I think is, the answer is because it's not going to become a philosopher king <laughs> system again, nor do I believe in it, but it definitely wouldn't even if I did believe in it. Um, I think that the way for democracy to rid itself of its theocratic elements is similar to the way that I agitate for the Koch brothers and other billionaires who are trying to influence the directions of politics in every direction, actually, um, is to say that power is based on organizing not money. Of course, that's ridiculous, because when you have money, you organize really well. You hire people to help you organize. Yeah. And the rabbis of the chief rabbinate know that really well, which is why they are so well organized and so well funded. And to get to one of your questions, the Masorti movement gets no money from the government for its communal rabbis, despite their work to rebuild a Judaism that I think accentuates noble Judaism more than power-hungry Judaism. So the theocratic element is, for now, woven into the system because the government approves of this thing called the chief rabbinate, which invades the people with an extremist Judaism. And in fact, many of the Israelis that you'll meet around the world, and there are many of them in our area, have the Judaism burnt out of them by what the state of Israel has allowed the chief rabbinate to do. I'm a little bit upset about this. Well, yeah, well, I mean, its existence, I mean, exactly, its existence is an anti-democratic institution. Right. But the problem still stands, which Herb was raising pretty passionately. The problem still stands that even if it wasn't a chief rabbinate uh, uh, um, voicing uh, an extremist element for within Judaism, right, how does any group, I'll just say it this way, how does any group counter its own extremist tendencies? If I could just be a little bit uh, uh, clear about this, how do we as a community in Berkeley deal with the extremes of Berkeley? Right? People think that it's all anarchy, and the answer is no, it's not. 
We hate everyone else's rules. We love our rules, right? Just talk to the zoning commission about trying to build a tall building in Berkeley, right? So I think that what's really important to say, and that was a trite example, I could think of ones that have moral implications. Um, I think it's really, really important to say that a group, by virtue of being a group, has a hard time moderating itself. Moderates don't end up leading. They don't. They certainly don't sound as passionate, which means they don't drive their base, which means they don't get elected. But I believe in a democracy, so the question is, can there be some people who actually believe in a middle road and advocate for it with passion? You have someone like that leading Yesh Atid, one of the new, newer parties in Israel, but he's jockeying for power and making deals with people for whom uh, that's utilitarian and not actually an alliance. So, you know, you look at Yair Lapid, and he's an incredible, incredible voice. Certainly uh, um, mobilized, galvanized a lot of the young Israeli community with notions of Jewish pluralism, with notions of economic justice, with all sorts of notions. Um, but then in order to be part of the coalition, he's made decisions that certainly alienate him with some of his base. That sounds a lot like an American politician who's president right now. And so it's kind of complicated to wield power. How do you wield power and still hold true to noble ideals? That's a question that's universal when it comes to politics, which is why I think Israel is just as normal, mazel tov to us, as anybody else, right? That was one of the big ideals that Israel was reaching for, that a Jewish prostitute would be brought before a Jewish judge. That's when we will have succeeded at Zionism. That was said by one of the early fathers of Zionism. Right? So mazel tov, we're there. Now what? Right? Can we actually be noble? So I think I want to do this because we're just about out of time. Um, there was a moment that for a lot of people would sound kind of mundane, but for me is, is certainly not. Um, I was on a trip to Israel about four years ago, and uh, I was in a mall. Just, you know, I had my kids, I needed to do something, so we brought them to the mall. There was an indoor play space in the Malcha Mall in Israel, and uh, I was grateful that there was such a thing. Uh, and the kids are playing, and I had a few moments to myself, and so I went to the coffee shop that was just next to the play space. And it uh, happens to be a very good coffee shop. It's Aroma. I love, uh, I love Aroma. <laughs> um, and uh, I walked in, waited online, and ordered my coffee. And it was just a moment like anyone else's moment. And um, the barista who was there asked me my name, so I told her my name. And she wrote it down, and she said, Café Le Menachem. And it was this very, very simple thing. And I started crying, and of course, she was, you know... Like this American <laughs> lunatic is, you know, he's wearing a kippah too, like, oh God. And, um, and what made me weep was the fact that she could say my name. Um, and I know that on the geopolitical level, that really just doesn't sound like much. Um, and on the geopolitical level, I think things are actually quite complicated. From an emotional place as a Jew, it's not so complicated. I, I think that it actually comes down to being in a place where a name like Menachem is known and can be said. There was nothing different about me there, because I was a Jew. Um, I know that it's more than that, but I really do feel that Israel's my home because of things like that. That it's just normal to have a name like Menachem. Now, what does that mean for people whose name is not Menachem? To be honest, from an emotional place, that's not my question. My question is, where's home? And over the millennia, that question has had no answer. I think that's a good enough reason for there to be such a thing as my home 
is our home. How we make that home the right place, a better place, think back to when you say the word home, what it brings up for you when you were children. Pretty sure it was complicated, even if it was beautiful. That is true about the place I'm describing as home. The state of Israel is far from perfect. And it's not only because a barista can say my name, but it's also, God forbid, a place I can go if I need a place. And before you think that that's such a distant, esoteric conversation of the past, just today there was an assignment given in a middle school in California asking hundreds of 8th graders to write a piece debating whether or not the Holocaust was true as a debate exercise. And part of the assignment, we have the full assignment, the text has been shared, is why would a group fabricate something like the Holocaust as a writing assignment? Now, is Israel there only because of the Holocaust? Certainly not. Is it an answer to the Holocaust? Yeah. Is it much more than that? Yeah. But from both the place of knowing I'm home, which is not unrelated from the real problem of Jewish safety in the world, I think those are two really, really good reasons to have this conversation, both in an open but also a very directed way. I make no bones about the parameters that I believe we must have. I don't do them in, in an attempt to close down conversation, but I do them because I think the conversation is meant to be focused on the health of the Jewish people, at least as the, I see it. So my hope is that we're not done having the conversation. My hope is that we'll be able to generate very uncomfortable moments because we're open to talking to each other. But in the same way that we focus our conversation as a community on big ideals in focused ways, there should be no different than that. And so my hope is not only that we'll celebrate Israel 67 and 68th and 69th and 120th and 1,004th, birthday, but that we'll recognize that the miracle actually needs to continue feeling like a miracle. It's no simple thing for us to maintain. So I thank, I thank us for, for hosting. I'm 